We are back after a long break. How long has it been, Brant? Three months, four? I don't know. Long time. Yeah. Maybe more than that. Maybe. Maybe six months. I don't know. Uh, my name is Doug. I'm here with my co-host, Brant. And we are here to talk about startups, maybe even specifically our startup that now is, mm, it's approaching 18 months of age. Since you joined. Since I joined. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so it's, we, it's an interesting story, at least for us, it may, it may not be interesting to anyone else, but I guess we'll find out if we tell the story on this podcast, but there's some interesting things we believe, uh, could be educational, maybe perhaps inspiring, maybe motivating for others who are in a startup journey right now at various different stages to tell a little bit about, um, I guess some of the challenges, difficulties, decisions that we are for that we are forced to make um, as founders of young companies that are trying to figure out what you want to sell, who you want to be, all the things that uh, that come with with doing a startup. And along this journey in eighteen months, we have we pivoted twice. And the first when we started, well, actually, I guess Brant, you could say you've pivoted three times with this particular business, yeah, like three and a half, three and a half yeah. times. Yeah. So I joined Brandt about the first of the year, uh, 2022. And when when I joined the company, you had already gotten into Y Combinator. Right. Just barely. Just barely, yeah. And why don't you tell everybody what the idea was that got you into YC? It basically was, what if you took e-commerce and turned it into shoppable video, kind of TikTok-style websites? So could you make your website feel more like a social app than kind of a stereotypical like print-based paradigm. So it's like video first, mobile first, really fast loading, that kind of stuff. I know it very well, yep. actually. <laughs> uh, and when you went through the YC interview, what percentage of the time in that interview did you spend on your idea? Uh, you mean like talking, what did they... Yeah, talking oh. about the idea, them asking you questions about the idea. Yeah, they... I would say it's like probably 70% and the other 30 was kind of go to market type stuff. Yep. Um, but very, it's the YC interview is very short. It's 10 minutes, just blast with questions. If you start talking about anything they don't care about, they just cut you off. And it's just like the so most, it sounds very friendly. Yeah. The most information dense interview of your life. Now, when you guys interviewed with YC, that was in December of 21, 2021. How long had you been working on that idea? Um, in some form, it was probably a year. About a year on that one. Yeah. You'd raised a pre-seed round. Yep. Um, and then when I came into your life and Roger came into your life about yep. the first of the year yep. when we decided to team up, we decided to pivot Yep. on day one of YC, which was, I don't know, it was early January, like the third or fourth of January. Yeah. And we decided to pivot into creating NFTs as a data layer for for e primarily e-commerce brands, right? Um, we um, all brands, but really web-based, and using it as like you would store a wallet in the browser, and you'd give away NFTs for free, and it would basically replace cookies as a way to interact with consumers on your website. Yep, seemed like a cool idea. We got some pretty good traction for the first few months of the year. 
And then we realized pretty quickly that that idea was probably at least five years too early or maybe forever too early. Or going to be made illegal. Or could be made illegal. We're yeah. not totally sure yet. <laughs> Things progress on a daily basis on the crypto front. Yeah. But what, what became very clear about by May of 2022, so about four months in, was it was probably more of an agency business than it was a venture scale business. Yeah. And we'd raised our seed round at that point, and we knew that we needed to pivot. And so about May, beginning of June-ish, we pivoted back to the idea that you guys were working on before, mm-hmm. which was short-form video landing pages in replace of like a kind of a print-based style. And we spent about 60 days or so building that product back to a place where... And I use the term, we built the product in a, the, the loosest form possible <laughs> because I had very little to do with the actual creation of that product other than some design stuff. But And then we began selling. Yep. And we began selling that product into e-commerce stores and we used this podcast as a form of customer acquisition Mm -hmm. cut these podcast clips into short form video on social channels and a few of them went viral and we had probably 150 or so e-commerce companies inbound to us it was interesting because it felt like at any point where we were like is this gonna work that just something like that would happen, like a video would go viral or like we would get some influx of leads from some place and it just kind of kept us going on on that idea. Yep. Which, you know, is could be looked at good and bad. But I found that interesting that like it that one video actually I think that went viral probably prolonged us working on that by months. Yeah, four months. Mm-hmm. Probably months. Through that process, we we sold for about the next what, 60 days or so, 60 to 75 days, yep. just purely to e-commerce brands that direct to consumer product companies primarily. Yeah. How would you describe that period of time, Brant? Pain. That was a lot of pain. <laughs> it's There's something about e-com, I think, for product people and engineers and I don't know, just anyone that builds things in the tech space that's interesting because it's so pervasive. And Shopify and other platforms make these really great flexible APIs that when you see them, you're just like, oh, there's so many possibilities of things I could build on top of this. But also there's 1 million other people doing the same thing. I did not realize how competitive it was in that sense. Probably the way that we framed it then was it's probably the most oversold software market in the country or in the world. Yep. And everybody, it's difficult when you think about your value prop. How am I going to stand out as a value prop Essentially, all the value props begin to morph into one thing, mm-hmm. which is we're going to change your customer acquisition costs. Yep. It's a very, and when you hear the same sales pitch over and over and over from many, many software companies, it's very difficult. So difficult, in fact, that we were having gr- lots of meetings with a lot of companies that agreed to a pilot and they would get on a pilot and we'd show good results for them. And even then, it was still difficult to get them on board for a longer term relationship. Yeah, another thing I didn't realize was how convoluted the attribution conversation gotten. So if if you're not an e-com, it's how do you know which of your marketing efforts is actually making a difference to convert a customer? It's probably the simplest way to put it. And because you're doing seven different activities at once, or if you're a big company, you're doing 100 different things at once, 
attribution becomes really painful to make sense of. I knew that that was a thing like from working at Adobe and Vivint and big companies. I didn't realize that it made its way down into, you know, the smaller e-commerce brands and them trying to buy these complicated platforms to make sense of all this. And it just, as soon as you got into them saying like, oh, what's the conversion rate increase? And like, what's the CAC increase and all those things? It just like, I think we just knew this is over. Yep. Like if that's how you're going to measure this, this is over. So same product, small pivot on the customer acquisition strategy. We said the real problem, we're getting all these meetings, we're having really good conversations, but getting these people to commit was like, you know, Brant's dating life. Just couldn't find (laughs) the right partner. It was very difficult. So we said, you know, Brant kind of looked at me one day, I think we're wasting your talent on like these small $10,000 sales. Let's go hook a big fish. Because you were sitting there telling me working at Vivint, okay, I was doing deals with, you know, Fortune 50 companies. This is like a whole different arena of sales. Yep. That is actually very valuable and hard to find. And this is going to sound maybe a little bit arrogant, but basically most of the people who run marketing for these direct-to-consumer e-commerce brands would have been a direct report of a direct report of a direct report of mine. And I was trying to get through to them about why this marketing tool would work for them. And it was really difficult. And basically what we wanted to do was, how do we go talk to a decision maker versus someone who's not necessarily a decision maker and get deep into a sale and get our product really entrenched? Well, that was an unlock. And over the next three months, we got to a place where we were bumping up against $2 million of, of ARR starting that pivot about September 1st by about February 1st-ish. It, it was between 1.5 and 2 million of ARR. And the, and the pivot more concretely was what? It was more just form-based yeah. rather than e-com yeah. and service-based businesses rather than e-com mm-hmm. and more of an enterprise-level sale. It, enterprise is the wrong way to frame it, actually, because they're not enterprise companies necessarily. But what I would say is big-ticket sales versus a small-ticket. We were... We were going after ten to fifty thousand dollars of recurring revenue. These customers were hundreds of thousands of dollars of recurring yeah. revenue. I think enterprise is the label still in the software world. Yeah, what it was, and things were going good. And then we got one of our customers invited us to come work for free in a pretty nice office where we had glass and windows and light coming in, this, and this room where we're actually yeah. sitting right now. It's a conference room today. Yeah. And um, they're a customer of ours, big customer of ours, um, called RoofWorks. What they were solving is trying to fix a very painful roofing process that is part of residential solar installations. Sometimes when you put a 25-year product on someone's roof, they have to get a new roof before they can get you know solar panel on their roof. And when we moved into this uh, space, two things happened. One... We began having really honest conversations with ourselves about where we were, which is really hard to do sometimes because you have to maintain so much optimism as a founder or you will literally go insane. Mm -hmm. But that requires you to also take a step back sometimes, get out of the weeds, raise your head up over the weeds a little bit and just do an honest assessment of what's going on. So the first thing, and we'll touch on this first, the honest assessment that we had with ourselves was are our customers buying us or the product? And the truth was, if we were being really honest with ourselves, 
they were more buying us. Yep. Even though the product was working really well for their companies, and it still is, by the way. Um, we've got a couple customers who still use the product very, very happily as part of a, a different relationship that we're with them now. So that was the first thing. And does that does that customer acquisition model scale? And and just to like touch on what buying us meant, it was you were basically selling, hey, I was the CMO of a very large company. And here's all the things that I know how to execute on a high level. I was kind of coming at it from like the tech perspective of executing on product and engineering stuff. I've also had marketing background and they were just thinking like, oh, okay, you guys can come in and actually like help us with the the strategic start part of this as well, which was a very different play than most, like at least what we were doing with the software where we were trying to think of how does someone get in and use this all by themselves and have success? Yep. Didn't see a path there. Yeah. But it's hard because could we have taken that company to success? I still think the answer is yes. However, when we got into this office and got to know the RoofWorks guys even more, one of their founders, Reno, is now our business partner, but I'd known forever, but the other one was new. And as we began to understand more about their business, I looked at Brant one day and I said, I think we should tell the RoofWorks guys that we should kind of combine these companies, go after their idea, and our skill sets on top of that company, I think would be pretty special. And it was hours and hours of meetings with just us talking through why pivot, if we could even get a deal together and make it work, and then with them convincing them that, you know, this was a good fit for them and for us. And here we are. That that deal got done. And, and like just some color on how I thought about it at the time. I knew that we had so much more to build. What I thought was like a more concrete roadmap on the Remy shopping product than we had ever had. Like we had like really detailed designs. The product was like stable enough where from like a server and engineering perspective, like a lot of those hard problems you have to solve at the beginning were set in place and solved and we had process around. But I was looking at those designs at the same time and just knowing, okay, these are this is probably like nine months of work at least just to get to the point where we can say, hey, we're now going general availability to some degree yep. or we're opening this up more broadly so that we can go beyond being like an agency-based like enterprise one at a time thing to getting more like mass adoption. And at the same time, I think I started to understand your relationships a little bit better with like the solar industry, the roofing industry, all the different kind of people involved in roof works and like what that would mean. And we started playing out some of the numbers involved. They were not obvious to me. And I don't think they are to most people of like how much money there is in the space and how little attention it gets from what I would call like Gurus tech company. Yeah. Like it gets a lot of attention from sales Yep, and they bring along technologists and I'm not saying there's no good ones. There's I've, I've met some, some talented ones, but it's not the culture of the company. That's right. And so we looked at it and said, you know, is there, is there sort of like a Uber type play here where we can be like an Uber for roofing? and kind of come at this and solve all the problems with like a technology first lens and have an advantage in that way. Yep. So basically 
now we look at this and say, we've worked now on this product for, let's see, February, March, April, May, June. It's be almost five months now. Roofworks. Roofworks, yeah. yep. Mm-hmm. Which we actually are not Roofworks anymore. We brought it into Remy. Mm-hmm. So it is still Remy. And we are still very tech-focused, even though you're like, oh, this is roofing? What do you mean roofing? And some of our investors were like, wait, what? Roofing? I thought you wanted to build a tech company. I thought you wanted to be venture scale. Well, actually, those two things are still true. Um, there's a lot of opportunity um, in this space. But the key thing that Brent and I were laughing with each other, probably, I don't know, in March, early on into this new project. And I, I asked him, I said, hey, Brent, do you think we have product market fit in this new in this new uh, direction we were moving? Because I can't tell you how many times we were we had had this conversation Usually me bringing the conversation to Brant because I was new to startups, trying to figure out like, how do you know when you have product market fit? And guys, let me tell you, when you have product market fit, you know it. And we knew it. Like it wasn't even a question anymore. Roofworks, the product they were working on had product market fit. And maybe Brent, you could provide a little bit of more color as to like why we just were like, yeah, we have it. It's there. I think one of the hallmark differences is that you don't come into work on a weekly basis feeling like there's the potential to change your entire product direction. <laughs> that's that's one that jumps out. It's more like now we have a hundred different opportunities and which ones do we want to pick? And all of them represent like reasonably high dollar amounts. It's not theoretical. They're sort of opportunities that are sitting there if we want them because the need is is so obvious and so great. It's not, you know, in, the, in our previous context of building the Remy shopping things like, well, yeah, the people should want this if they like understood. And some people did. And they did, but there was so much convincing and sort of probably more of a startup that would go along the the lens of like starting a new movement. Uh-huh. And that's just kind of a different, a different journey. And so I think could have been that we've gone like a year and a half further into the Remy shopping thing and got enough case studies and enough success where people started to look and say like, okay, now I really want that thing. We had the same type of feeling, Yep. but it wasn't there at all when, when we pivoted. That's right. And the other thing that I will say is, you know, when we got here, tech, they had a product, but it was basically some patched together CSV files for, I mean, for lack of a better term, there was, there was more than just that, but yeah, but there's, there's code, but it, it was, it was um, basic. It was not like, I wouldn't say it was like the focus of the company. That's right. A tech company. Yeah. Yeah. But even if that was true, the customers were like pounding down their door for yeah. their product and so the way that I describe it to Brandt is now, you know, the first 12 months or so of this um, startup, for me, I was really naive coming in. It's like, well, I'm going to layer sales on top of an idea and I'm just going to go after it. And that's kind of what we did the first three months. And we had like, even going through YC, we had this incredible pipeline, customers that were signed agreements, all that. But that didn't really prove to be true. It didn't come to fruition the way that I had expected it to. And now when I look back at that time, it felt like I was running a science experiment, not necessarily a business, is the way that I feel today. Whereas now, we have tons of problems, like all businesses do. 
but it feels like I'm running a business again. And maybe that's the distinction of how do I know if I'm exiting seed stage and kind of moving in towards a series A type of company, even if you're not fundraising, but you've kind of left the idea maze is what you said. I'm not worried that we're going to start from scratch on remaking our whole product on day one. That's like maybe the tech lens from the business side. It's like, I don't need to worry if I'm even selling the right product anymore. It's now just finding the customer and delivering on what we promise and they're going to be really happy. Yeah, it seems like, I don't know, this, this is all somewhat um, of a moving target, but like, you know, there's there's obvious like revenue benchmarks when you're fundraising and how to think about it, whether you're in like seed stage or series A or B or whatever. And even with like, do you have product market fit? To some degree, it doesn't really, I don't know. It's like one of those questions of like, sometimes I um, wonder, especially in the early stage, like why people are so focused on answering the question or not. And it almost just seems like, I don't even remember who said it, but it's it's like, oh, if you're continually asking, you most likely don't have it. So the only real function it serves in my mind is just trying to understand if you should like keep working on the given idea or not, you know, currently working on. And this is where I think the founder market idea fit is interesting and and played into our decisions as well. So I would say when I was kind of working without you guys, I was thinking about this from the lens of just build a great product. I knew how the whole like sales and go to market motion worked, but it, it's not like the first thing I think about. So it's just like build a great product. I know how to bring in the other people and we'll go attack it that way. But like the product is the focus. Um, and that's where you start. And I, just sort of knew that the beginning stages sometimes take years to like really craft the right thing. When you came in and started talking about the pre-existing relationships in the solar industry, and then I also saw sort of the level of sales ability you had in like the, I don't know, more enterprise arena. It was like, oh, if we keep down this or this existing path there's going to be a point where you know our founder market fit and it already was kind of like misaligned i i thought you you brought this up and just making the the tweak that we did it sort of allowed you to then sit in front of like focusing on the finances the spreadsheets that you like to you easily came into you know roofworks and were able to identify a lot of different aspects of of the finances that you know i don't think would be obvious to most people you know even though this isn't like the same type of tech product i'm still getting to do all the same type of stuff in terms of like going deep on product and it's interesting and it's fun you're getting to do the other side of it that i think is more interesting and fun for you and like that one change alone i think just from like an energy perspective made a world of difference. And that was even something that like got brought up on some of our investor calls. Like, yep, guys, I don't know if I still fully understand this, but all I know is your energy is like 180. Yeah. The light is back in your eyes. Yeah. So one thing that's interesting that maybe we can, we can uh, kind of begin to wrap this thing up that I've thought a lot about is, well, there's really two aspects to this that I want to talk about because I think this is important from a founder's perspective. I think everybody, when you start a company and you're a founder, the idea 
matters. And I think there's something in the back of a founder's brain that's like, man, if I invent something that so many people use from scratch, this idea that we had, wouldn't that be amazing if it works? And when it works, wouldn't, won't that feel amazing? Well, guess what, guys? The business we're working on today, we didn't have the idea. But we have been able to come in and provide significant value. And to Reno's credit, our, our business partner um, on this project, he had an amazing idea. But what Reno was lacking was some of the other team members that he needed to help execute. And he talk about my relationships in the solar industry. Reno has as much, if not more, in the solar industry. So he, he was like working in the right space. He had all the right relationships. But there were still things that he needed in order to make this work. So it's not always just about the idea. It's oftentimes it's idea, team members, and it's business model. All those three things are very, very important in order to be able to execute. Now we're in a place that we've got a great team. We've got the product is starting to come along. We've got some really exciting possibilities with our partnerships. Our revenue is strong. Our margins are strong. And it's interesting to watch it all come together. But ultimately, the product, the project we're working on, we didn't think of. That's kind of weird to think about. Yeah, I think just kind of nailing down this point or hammering it home, the, there's a book I started listening to around this same time called Super Founders. And essentially, this guy, Ali, took data and just broke down all of the common patterns that everyone talks about of like, oh, well, to be successful, you have to have at least three founders. Or to be successful, you have to be 25. Or there's just all these sort of anecdotes that get tossed out. And there was a lot around like what ideas work and on and on and on. And he basically compiled all the data and just kind of proved more or less that there isn't one. There's no model. There's no pattern. There's no model. There are some things that show up, you know, where they happen more often than not. But it's less one-sided than you think like the the most strong patterns happen 65 70 percent of the time or something like that you know he had one example where the company started with 14 founders like if you and i saw that we'd be like you guys are stupid kind of sounds like twitter yeah you guys are stupid this isn't gonna work did it work it worked yeah wow i don't remember what company it was but it's like a billion dollar crazy company yeah it's it's back to where we've talked about this before but it's back to where you have to have that optimism. You have to pay attention to what other people have done. Like you can't just be naive and try and think you know everything. But at the same time, you have to realize that you're going to go against the convention on some subset of things. That's actually the essence of creating something valuable. And knowing which of those things it should be takes like a lot of guts and it's hard and you're not going to be perfect at guessing what those things are. And having people that you like really trust to kind of consult is a huge part of huge part success in this, particularly people that have accomplished things and have a type of life that you actually want is like a huge, huge part of who you should choose. I see so many founders pick people whose lifestyles they want nothing of or don't match what theirs are. Like a common one is people that have never had kids, but they have a family of four or five. Well, whatever advice that person's going to give you most likely doesn't line up with, you know, the types of things that you might think about in terms of where to make those trade-offs. So anyways, I, I think that, you know, the jury's still out on where our story will go. Yeah. But in terms of where we've been able to get to and sort of make thinking about making those trade-offs, like we know we're sort of 
going against some amount of the norms, but it feels it, you, you can just sort of feel like when you made the right choices and it's obvious now that we made those right choices to get to where we're at. That's connected to this. And the last thing we'll talk about here before we wrap pivoting takes a massive amount of humility and there is nothing that will humble you faster than a startup. Nothing that I've ever experienced. And it's everything from no matter who I talk to and I run into that knows that I'm doing a startup, it's always like, so you guys doing that thing still? It's like, no, we actually pivoted. And I got to walk people through it every single time. And you have to be able to look people in the face that don't know anything about startups, don't know anything about your situation, and be really honest to be like, it didn't work. That's you have to be willing to do that and be honest with yourself. And so you have to you you have to maintain humility because it's going to happen dozens and dozens of times. You know, as you navigate the startup journey, and it's got to be something. It's just part of the journey. And just knowing that there's a lot of people who you know are either jealous of what you're doing, but don't have the guts to actually go out from the opportunities that they're currently in, and are going to potentially like want you to fail in some way so that they can justify that it was a dumb thing to do and then that they don't have to do it themselves. And, or you have people that, you know, just don't like you or whatever. But the point is along the road, there's also people who are like behind your back saying, Oh, I knew they shouldn't have done that. Yep. I know that was a dumb idea. Like yep. I knew, and they're just going to sit there and armchair everything that you do. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Doesn't matter at all. I think for us, it's just, we kept coming back to like, I don't know, we're just having a good time. Like this is what we like doing. It's not fun all the time, like in the day to day, especially when having to like downsize the company and like let go of people we care about or figure out like how to pivot for the fourth time or whatever. It's, It's not that it's always fun, but the overall game is something that, that we enjoy. So that's right. Like who cares? We're going to keep playing it. Yep. And look, even if this doesn't turn out to be a success at the end of the road, I think we can look ourselves in the face and say, we really did try everything we could to make it work, but we're going to get this one across the line. (laughs) We're going to get this one across the line. Uh, It's going good. And you really do have to enjoy the journey as cliche as that sounds. It is you know, we've had this conversation multiple times where it's like, man, I wish we would have just known that up front, X, Y, or Z factor, variable, whatever this thing. And it's impossible. You you just don't know what you don't know. And that is part of the fun of being a startup. If you want to know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow, there are lots of companies or government agencies that you can go work for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that is, that is of you can have that. That is not why you start a startup. You, you have to get into the startup game because you want the variability, you want the challenge, you want the mental exhaustion, you want to think differently than you have for the you know in any other part of your career. And if you're you're up for those things, be ready because it's going to be a roller coaster. You really just don't know what to expect. Okay, well, this was either the first or the continuation of. <laughs> unnamed or potentially not unnamed podcast and we look forward to talking more regularly with you guys again we've got some fun topics coming up and we will talk to you all soon see ya